HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora. And Bobby Conforto, me. Mom, you. Zara. (laughs) Mom, it's you. You're so cute. Hi. Hi, Zara. It was a lovely show we had today. Oh, loved it. Loved the show. Always loved the show. Loved the show today so much. Martel Catalano, who is the executive director and co-founder of Beyond My Battle, which is a nonprofit um, helping people cope, I guess, just to just put it briefly with chronic illness. But we got much more into it in the episode. And uh, yeah, Martel was just like on, I felt like we were all just on the same, real same wavelength. And the conversation really flowed in such a organic and wonderful way. And she was a fascinating person with a fascinating perspective and talked a lot about Buddhism, which was very cool. And, and, how, uh, that, and the, how that helped her deal with what is. It was just, I mean, we yeah. won't get too, too many spoilers because really yeah. it's, a, it's a juicy episode. It's yes. really great. But while we're here, while I've got you face to face, what's what's happening with you? How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, I was remembering that it was exactly a year ago that I was in Brooklyn with you. And the last time that we actually, March 6th, today's March 5th, but it was March 6th last year, that we actually sat down and had a wonderful meal. We knew that COVID was around, but we were still hanging out. And um, you took me to the doctors we and we went to have lunch. Yeah. Yep. And I've just, it was yeah. a year ago today and such a long, long, strange yeah. year. And I haven't hugged you and I haven't cooked with you and I haven't eaten with you and I miss you that way but we have seen each other for nice long walks and talks we have 
Yeah, you know, one thing I didn't ask Martel in the show, which I wanted to, but we just ran out of time, but but I'll kind of put it to you maybe, and, and listeners, please, I'd love it if you would maybe write in processing at heritageradionetwork.org and let us know what you think or hit us up on Instagram at processing underscore podcast. But I wanted to kind of ask Martel in when she's talking about her uh, her chronic illness and also her struggles with eating disorders in her younger life. Um, you know, what the, what, if any, were the positive points? What, what happened? Like, what did you, what flowers grew out of that? And she kind of touched on it without even directly asking, but I'm curious to know for folks out there, like, what are some of the, the things that have happened as a result of this past year that have been positives, you know, that have the little maybe flowers that have grown through the cracks. And so my guess what came out of um, Martel's situation was this this wonderful work that she does, right? That's yeah. one thing that came out of it. Yeah, just really sure. beautiful work that she's doing to help other people. What about for you, though, with COVID? What's one of the little flowers that have grown out of the cracks in the sidewalk of COVID for you? Um, I believe that I have slowed down more and have less urgency and um, I accept more what's happening right now. I feel mm. like I'm more in the moment than I've ever been. Totally. That's really a good one. I feel very similar in that way. Yeah. I feel similar in that way, and I feel like um, less yearning. You know, I guess that's kind of a similar theme, yeah, but similar like similar thing, yeah. Less yearning and really being aware of what it is to want, and if, and wanting isn't bad. You know, there's plenty of wanting that's positive and and healthy and normal. But I think there can be, you know, there's balance within that. So I think. Um, getting to kind of understand the difference between like unnecessary yearning and which is like not just acceptance and then also like thinking about things that I want to cultivate practically for my future. So I think that's been my my best thing. Um, so without any further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Martel. Martel, thank you so much for this beautiful talk. You're a wonderful human and we are so happy and honored to have met you. And Bobby, have a great weekend. I hope you, I'm sure you're going to be making some kind of soup. So yes, I will. <laughs> uh, you'll let us know next week what, what flavor it was. Okay. Take good okay. care. Bye. Bye. Martel Catalano and Martel is the executive director and co-founder of Beyond My Battle, a nonprofit um, specializing in uh, reducing the stress of serious illness, rare disease and disability through emotional support and educational resources rooted in mindfulness, awareness and compassion. Martel, hello. Hi. It's How are you? It's great. great to have you. Yeah, we chatted a bit like last week and got to know each other on a Zoom call. And it was so great to to chat with you. And we were connected through our mutual friend of the podcast, Kimberly Warner, who's so awesome. And um, yeah, it's just really, it's lovely to have you and feels like community building. Yeah, I, I'm honored to be here. So thanks for having me. I love your show. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So Martel, you're joining us from uh, upstate New York, where you've been for a, a while, right? You were in the, you grew up in New Jersey and then 
were in the city for a while. And how long have you been upstate in the kind of country life for? Oh, I've been up here for, I guess, the last six years. I also happened to go to college here. So um, I was here for those four years and then I left for a while and came back. So I guess it was 2014 or actually more like 2015. So it's going, this will be my sixth year back here. Wow. And what's it been like uh, for you being like, you know, I, we all have our very unique kind of perspective of what the past year has been like, as we speak, it's almost exactly a year since, you know, COVID started really affecting all of our lives. Um, What's the vibe? What is it like being up where you are? Well, a couple of things. Definitely a lot of people are moving here permanently. I've noticed from the city area, we got a lot of people uh, just relocating their lives. I think what happened was uh, there was an initial uh, leaving of the city or city areas and uh, trying to seek some kind of, you know, social distancing that could sustain itself for like maybe that summer or that spring. Mm. And then people found the proximity to nature to be quite pleasing and and decided to, to post up here permanently. Um, but I will also say that I live in a tourist town. So I live in Saratoga Springs, which mm. is famous for its uh, race course and music scene in the summer. And I was expecting last summer to not be as crowded as it was. And it was really still busy and less because of the track, which was closed in the performing arts venues, but um, more just, I think, to, like I said, get out and get somewhere different. Yeah. Totally. It's been such a, you know, to say it's been such a wild time is such an understatement, but, you know, it's just, it it really just struck me actually this morning when I woke up how it has been a year. And I'm like, it's always interesting to hear how like different people in different places are dealing with it. I just was, before we started the show, I was chatting with Amanda, our engineer, about uh, a co-host of my other podcast had just needed to get out. So she went on a road trip to Florida thinking it would be fine. And, you know, she was just like, it's jam packed and there's people everywhere and it's like spring break. And then you are in Manhattan, like, and in Brooklyn, like everyone's wearing a mask and it's just, it's just very interesting regionally sidebar just to, uh, to kind of think about how everyone's doing this thing. But so you grew up in, in New Jersey, right? Yeah. I grew up in, um, a small town in New Jersey, just outside of New York city. So, um, if you're familiar with Montclair, which has a great, you know, restaurant scene and, uh, you know, scene in general, that's the area that I'm from. And I, I loved it. It was, it was great. I mean, my dad worked in times square growing up. So I, you know, went in and out of the city and I still have friends Mm. and family down there. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. And then, so, you know, as we were chatting about the other day, but just kind of like linking to like your upbringing, um, when you were 13, you were diagnosed with a chronic degenerative um, illness. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I received a diagnosis of a disease called retinitis pigmentosa when I was 13, and it's often called just RP for short. So I'll use that uh, abbreviation, but uh, RP is a genetic disease and neither of my parents knew that they were carriers of it, of mm. course. So I have a recessive gene. And it, so the diagnosis really, I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere because I knew that something was wrong, but we had no idea what it was. And it was really surprising for my whole family, um, to learn about a disease that essentially, uh, 
slowly starts to eat away at your vision. And I noticed that my night vision was very clearly not what it was supposed to be because I was spending a ton of time, you know, as a middle schooler playing outside with my friends and I lived around the corner from a park and I was just always very, I've always been super wanting to play outside. That was always my thing. (laughs) So no matter when the sun went down, um, still wanted to hang out outside. And I just started to notice that it was way harder for me than everybody else to get around or just even like walk around or to, to look at fire flies or stars in the sky. Mm. It was just different. So we shuffled or I got shuffled around to a bunch of doctors and ended up really getting my diagnosis at UPenn and in Philadelphia, which is where, um, I still go. I still have my doctor at Penn. And uh, yeah, so now today, like fast forward, I guess, you know, almost 20 years. um, And I, I'm technically legally blind because I have less than 20 degrees of uh, vision from my central, you know, region. I don't know how you say that. I'm I'm not up on the the blindness (laughs) language, but um, I essentially what happens is the the night blindness is the first indication you lose that part of your vision and then you start to lose your peripheral vision too. So um, it's a a tunneling vision effect and uh, it's definitely presented its challenges. There's, I know a lot of people who live in New York City or, or various cities who are blind and, and it, I was working there during a really difficult time in my recognition of this degeneration, and I I could not be in a in a really crowded space um, environment. Mm. It was really dangerous to me, honestly, just juggling the the internal anxieties of vision loss and just like identifying as someone who obviously has a disability mm. and the thoughts of like, well, when do I need a cane? And when do I need a guide dog? And like, should I have yeah. kids someday? And like all those things right. just going around in my mind, mm. in addition to like, you know, a zillion taxis and, and cars and people, of it just was not the right environment for me, but it does work for some people because it brings you that additional independence um, right it's robbed from you because I haven't driven a car in like 10 years <laughs> yeah. that's very interesting yeah I mean and so you know I just want to like kind of circle back for a minute like being 13 is the worst <laughs> for everyone right is there a worse age I mean of course there's like lovely things about being 13 but if we're just pick a worse the worst age you could be it's probably th- it's very you difficult fit in. it's so hard yeah yeah. Exactly, Bobby. Fitting in is, you know, right on the nose. And not to mention, like, everything else is changing. You're coursing with hormones. You're like, uh, everything's awkward. Like, what a what a hard time of, I mean, any time is a hard time to, like, lose one of your senses or to deal with illness. Or, I mean, but I, I'm just really struck by the fact that, like, you know, at that age, yes, you're trying to fit in. And also, it's just, like you haven't, you haven't done enough. You know what I mean? Like you haven't lived enough yet. It's like not, it's, it's really unfair. And to have to be able to kind of wrap your mind around like losing that, like how, how did you cope as a 13 year old with that? I mean, obviously you've found, and we'll get into this later ways to cope with that as an adult, but I'm just so curious as, as a young person like that, what was that like for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, Bobby, you're spot on with the wanting to fit in thing. I think if you're 13 and you're not trying to like fit in, you know, something's a little off, right? Like you, I mean, 
more power to you, I guess. But I I definitely was a kid that wanted to fit in. And I was a little, um, you know, uh, well, regardless, I, (laughs) I will say that uh, being that age and receiving a diagnosis is super hard. And I think back to it now, in that I really didn't acknowledge it. I didn't let it bother me. I was just like, okay, I'm night blind. Like that was the part of it that I really was just like, okay, I'm night blind. I guess I shouldn't, you know, be running around super fast at night. I should be, I should be the jail guard during the manhunt game instead of the person going and tagging people. So I like kind of adjusted without really embarrassing myself. Um, uh, and, and I think that my parents to their credit really didn't let me go down the rabbit hole of like, well, this is going to get worse. You know, you're going to lose more vision and you're going to lose it in this way. And, mm. and I going into the future too much. Yeah. Yeah. They let me just be a kid, which is I think really important. And now when I have mm. in the work that I do, I have parents often ask me like, how much should we talk about this at home? Like what's too much? What's too little? Are we going, are we just like dis- disassociating from this condition or are we talking about it? Oh, is it overkill? And I really think it's somewhere in between. It's like, you have to acknowledge that it's a reality, but then like let your kid just be a kid and do stupid things and make mistakes and, and just, yeah, be, be a 13 year old kid. Um, so we didn't talk about it a ton. And, uh, although we knew it was kind of in the background and, uh, I guess that's part of the coping that I did at that age was just really acknowledge the half of it, the night blindness part of it that was obvious to me and not go into the future um, and not think about like, oh man, I'm going to like lose all my vision maybe at some point. And what's that Mm going to be like for me? So um, I don't know what that did on a subconscious level. You know, at this point I'm, I'm now reflecting back like, wow, I wonder what I would have been like if I acknowledged it, the full Mm -hmm. capacity of it more at that age. But I think we did. I mean, and and also I have to just share this, that like the internet was not what it is today. Um, So going online and, and going down those medical rabbit holes that you can go on didn't exist to the capacity that it does today. There wasn't like the forum type of setting. There wasn't Facebook. There wasn't any groups. I mean, there was like AOL where you logged in with your modem and yeah. <laughs> dialed yeah. in. So I, that helped too. That you helped know. a lot. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I guess what Great your point. parents helped you do is they, like I said before, you they didn't drag you into the future too much. They helped keep you in the present. And that was so important. And in any crisis, it's so important to stay in the present. But a very famous grief counselor once had a wonderful metaphor for this. And they were talking about kids and grief and how much do you tell them and if a parent is dying and all that kind of stuff. And they said, you invite them to dance, but you let them lead. Meaning you let them know that you're open to talk about things, but you wait for their questions. So I imagine if if you had asked your parents, what's going to happen in the future? I don't imagine they would have said, no, no, don't say that. Don't worry about it. But you yeah. didn't want, you know, you were in, in your turtle shell and that was safe and you could be in the present. And so it sounds yeah. like your parents really handled it well and helped you I that way. I love that, Bobby. I love just to like that quote, you invite them to dance and let, let them, them lead. lead. Like, is it? Is that not, I mean, just kind of even a great way to approach other human beings <laughs> in life always. Like, it's just what great advice. I'm sorry. I just had to yeah. mention that <laughs> it's that's true. my new favorite it's saying. <laughs> Of all time. Totally. I mean, my mom is a psychologist, so I think that that helped too. Although I've now learned 
in my adult years through talking to them so openly about this, um, it was really hard for them. And they've now expressed to me how difficult it was for them at that age. My dad actually went on to find that he has a cousin one of like a hundred cousins that he has, uh, being a, you know, from an Italian family, a New, a New York Italian family. He has sure. like all these cousins and one of his cousins has it and didn't even know that he had it. He just succumbed to a life of being blind and oh not gosh. really investigating why, but my dad like brought this cousin of his down to Philadelphia to my doctor and like really confirms that it's in his family. And obviously my mom is some kind of carrier too. And we don't know why, but my dad, I think felt a lot of guilt and mm. I didn't know that until I was really an adult and I didn't know how hard it was for him as a parent um, until later in life. And, uh, and really both of them, but my mom, Obviously, as a psychologist, I had, I think, a little bit more, you know, study and training in that area. Yeah. So one thing that I've noticed from speaking with uh, folks on the show and and in life, too, and Bobby, I don't know, you know, actually, oddly, I've never really asked you this because you have a chronic illness as well. Um, is that the, like when one bit of control over your health, uh, it, you know, leaves and you, you don't have that control anymore, that there's a desire oftentimes to get control in other ways, which makes so much sense. And I think, you know, even those of us who don't have chronic illness, you know, uh, kind of do that dance as well. Absolutely. But can you just kind of talk to us a little bit about, Maybe some of the ways in which as you kind of grew up and, or, you know, you're living with this condition, like about some of the ways that affected you. Yeah, uh, I think it happens for patients and I can I will say I think it can happen for caregivers, too. So um, both when when something so close to you is out of your hands, we do grasp for control somewhere else. And uh, for me, it was almost an immediate reaction. Um, I wouldn't say quite so immediate. Like there was those few years of real, um, youth and innocence that, uh, that are like, you know, you're 13 and you're 14. Yeah. And, but by the time I was, I would say 15, 16, I, I, there was obviously other additional social pressures going on, but I was looking for control obviously and in, in my body. And as many young women do, um, decided that I was fat and that I needed to lose weight. And I wasn't, by the way, I was probably like mm -hmm. 130 pounds, 120 mm -hmm. pounds and I'm five, seven. And it's like, yeah. I decided that I really needed to lose a bunch of weight and, mm -hmm. um, uh, developed a serious eating disorder. I mm -hmm. was, anorexic for, I don't know, a year or two, I couldn't really sustain the level of weight loss that I had, uh, done to my body. I lost my, you know, I was not menstruating. I was all the things that accompany, um, significant weight loss and eating disorders. And, um, and it was obvious, you know, now looking back what I was doing that it was a real grasping at straws for something to control, something to fix about myself when this was a very unfixable, uh, very fundamental part of me that is unfixable. And we, we as you know, human beings just love to fix things. And I think that that's just mm. part of our nature, fix things since the beginning of time. Right. <laughs> so, sure. so um, that lasted, I, I would say it morphed into various other eating disorders, um, some, some 
bulimic tendencies and, and then overeating and then binging and purging and like a lot of for for at least a decade was really trapped in this cycle of like, well, if I lose this weight, if I go on this diet and then a lot of um, obviously uh, self-sabotage because you start to you, you hate yourself and then you realize all the other reasons you hate yourself and you have no discipline and you're ugly or you're this or you're that. So um, it was really a, a difficult time. And I, I have to, I have to connect it back to my diagnosis um, because I'm, I mean, who's to say that I wouldn't have developed the eating disorder otherwise, nobody knows, but it just seems so clear to me now that it was a control uh, attempt for control. Yeah. Well, the powerlessness of not being able to change something, you know, like we said before in life, we can always fix things. And when we find something we can't fix, it's it, it, the powerlessness is overwhelming, so it often turns to guilt or self sabotage, and there's also anger when we can't fix something. Do you think that you had remember having anger through the years? Is that part of one of the emotions that has come up? Totally, a lot of anger. Honestly, more anger in my teenage years than anything else. Um, mm. I was not the best. Uh, teenager to have at, at home and not for the reasons of like I was smoking uh, weed or like you know going out and breaking the laws I was just miserable I was a, mm. I was a miserable um, mm. teenager after this point and and yeah and and I think it was a lot of anger like I took it out on my parents for sure but it was anger at myself and it wasn't anger mm. at my eyes at least in a mm. conscious sense it was really like an anger at no, no, uh, control, no discipline. Um, all of those things that, you know, were so, I, I made them up. I made them be that way. Mm. Isn't it a you shame know, that when we go through such a difficult time and then we add on to it, being angry at ourselves, I was just going <laughs> to say that. And it's like, my, what I, my question is, I don't know if any of us can answer this really, but I think it's a good thing to just think about is that like, you know, societally, we we throw like kind of broad terms on it. Like even like I said before, like God, being 13 is the worst or being a teenager. Teenagers are terrible or wild. But like and not even just being a teenager, but we don't really talk about what to do when you feel like shit about yourself. Like, you know, we learn all this stuff in high school and take regents and all this ridiculous I mean that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> about what to like learn in school but really like you know there's so much self-hatred because you're unaware of like and it continues sometimes for people for their whole lives and they never get out of it and it manifests in other ways but like god what's the solution for that what's the like what's the teaching or the 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 things that we can instill in people like beyond even in the home but like at on, on a practical level like hey you're going to start to think that you're terrible but really it's just that life is difficult and situations are painful and everyone has something else and it's like really not your fault so like where is this like compassion training because how many people out there raise your hand have like deeply hated themselves as a teenager for things that like weren't your fault and weren't within your control and then it becomes this whole thing you take with you like until you die honestly yeah. even if you do deal with it so I don't know what do yeah. we do about that <laughs> I think there's part of it that is just inherent to teenagedom like I think that mm. to some extent teenagers you know 
they're neurobiologically programmed to break away to Mm. um, they call it pruning of the brain. And it's like, you're like pruning these parts of yourself that you like no longer want to be attached to. So that's really difficult. And that's like a major and obviously hormones. It's there's some of it that I think every teenager is just always going to go through. I think what needs to happen is like, we have to, we could we could ease into it better and maybe like teach compassion to parents and teachers and so that like Absolutely. when they spend half of their day at school that teachers and coaches um, are aware of the struggles of teenagers and I mean I had a bad experience with a coach during my anorexia situation and it was like again looking back now I'm like how did she not handle that better it's so yeah. obvious to me but I, I really think that there's some of the the um, behavioral stuff of a teenager is just always going to be there. And it's like, well, how do we transition into adulthood and not carry that with us? Right. Like, yes, yes. so many people, I would say majority of people carry the feelings of inadequacy and self-loathing and and low self-worth into their adulthood and perhaps even the rest of their life. Exactly. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I always sure. say to clients, we're going to be on our deathbed. We're going to be 99 years old. And we're going to say, all this time, I thought I wasn't good enough. And it wasn't yeah. even true. And I say, that's why it's good to find out now. This is the time to figure out where that got stuck, you know, where yeah. where we learned that. But I think there's also a push-pull in growing up where, you know, you want to separate. And then you're angry that you don't want to separate. And you're angry. Yeah. Your parents want you to separate, but they don't want you to And there's so much of a push-pull yeah, going a on. Lot. It's so it hard. Really but is. there really is. I know in... in uh, looking at your website, your wonderful website, and also learning more about you that you've studied mindfulness. And I think what I have found is that there's been in education now, there's huge workshops going on for teachers and educators. And it's wonderful what's bring, what they're bringing into the schools now, because mindfulness is the way that we come to self-compassion and compassion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the mindfulness training, um, I've done some training with a organization out of Canada that they really incorporate into the schools in Canada and they're seeing lots of changes within you know child childhood classrooms through this uh with what's called a self-reg approach but really self-reg you know regulating self-regulation yeah yeah bringing your bringing which really requires you to be present and be mindful Mm -hmm. um but it's it is and um oh I don't know Zara I'll let you talk I know you're gonna say something no no I I don't I just just was curious about that I just it just was like it just struck me when you're talking about being an angry upset teenager and having your teenage years suck I was like man I I empathize with that I had a very similar experience and I'm like how many other people do and it just one more one more thing I would say would be helpful and I didn't do this because I went right off to college when I was you know 17 turning 18 um I I think I would I mean I am a major advocate for a gap year or two I think Mm, that we're shoving kids into an independent living situation uh, to find themselves to establish what kind of career they want to have for the rest of their lives way too early and that's so much more pressure than an 18 year old needs I mean it's it's very clear to me that you know college students now having taught meditation taught yoga at at actually my college here in Saratoga Skidmore um, is there's so much stress and there's, it's hard to escape it because you are living in it and you're surrounded by other people who are living in it. And, um, I would, I'm definitely an advocate for taking some extra time. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. 
Martel, I wanted to ask you, you know, I'm a grief therapist and this is a grief podcast. And I wonder, how does grief fit into your diagnosis and your condition? You know, when did you first recognize that you were grieving and what was that grief like and what kinds of grief have you had in this process? Yeah, I I think of all chronic illness and disability patients um, and caregivers, again, are, are grieving what my mom always calls the imagined life and mm. the life that you thought you would have had or that you wanted your child to have um, for before the diagnosis hit. And and some people don't have that, like, right, if you're born with a condition at birth, you might not have the grief. It, it may be present differently. Uh, of course, it certainly presents for the parent. Um, uh, yeah. But I will say that it's, it's probably the most common emotion that I hear about and that I uh, engage with our community members at Beyond My Battle about, and that comes up the most in our support groups. Um, and I would say that I've gotten to a point where I don't really grieve um, like that I can't drive anymore. That was something like I grieved at the beginning as a young, you know, 20 something, not being able to drive was definitely harder. Um, But I don't really grieve that anymore. I think what I grieve most is the time that I lost, like being depressed and living with such self-loathing and low self-worth that um, if I had learned the tools that I know now earlier in life, I would have been happier. I mean, you know, Bobby, like with, with trauma, you tend to actually black out a lot of your experiences. And I know for a fact that during the significant time of depression and anxiety, when I was, um, you know, malnourished, literally, and not eating, I hardly have any memories from those Mm. couple of years because it's just like a black hole for me. Um, And it's really common with eating disorder patients, I've I've come to learn. So uh, because it is a real, you know, deprivation of your body, but also like it's traumatic. And so I, I really grieve that time. I grieve like going to college and being confident and like not being so insecure about my body or, you know, my vision and going to parties and, you know, what that would, uh, was like for me without, without much of my vision. And, and if I had just, you know, like I said, had the tools at that time to really find compassion for myself and really be present in those moments, I would have probably had a a more enjoyable college experience. So I think I'm grieved. I more so than anything, just grieve like the time I lost not to um, my vision itself, like on a literal sense, but on an emotional and psychological level. Yeah. So I guess you're saying, you know, you grieved feeling free when you were young, right? And that's part of it. Yeah. And I feel so much freer now as somebody whose, whose vision is even worse than it's ever been. Like every year it gets worse and I feel more at peace and at home with myself, um, because of the, the mental, uh, framework that I've adapted. Mm. How have you learned to deal with the uncertainty of the future? Um, honestly, studying Buddhism. Um, I have been Mm. studying Buddhism for, I don't know, the past five years and, um, which was really the moment where things right before I moved upstate, um, I was in a really bad place, uh, 
with commuting and sitting out of the city and just realizing that things were difficult, were, were more difficult than I wanted them to be. Um, yeah. So I started studying yoga, but and I taught yoga for a while, but I realized pretty quickly after a couple different trainings that it wasn't like the yoga practice that I really loved. It was the philosophical takeaways and really from a, from a Buddhist lineage more than any other, because I think of the emphasis of uncertainty and impermanence um, and how central that is to all of the teachings. So really integrating those, those just universal truths into my life, knowing that everything is uncertain and everything is impermanent mm -hmm. and not just for me in my eyes, like it's not about me, it's about everybody. And it just opened me up to such a vast, um, I don't want to say acceptance. I like, I think that word is thrown around way too much. Um, mm. I, I use the term making peace with way more often because I think acceptance kind of connotes this like final destination. Like oh, I'm accepting of my condition now. And it's not true. Right. Like nobody, maybe a very few people like Dalai Lama type people have like accepted the true right. suffering of the world and, and, and their own suffering and the suffering of others that is immense. But I, I do feel like there I've cultivated a sense of just making peace with it because of the really of the Buddhist teaching. So um, Absolutely. I, I, I agree. I don't think I could do my work if I didn't have to study Buddhism myself. Yeah. What were you going to say? I love, that? That, I love the distinction that you made, Martel, between making peace with and acceptance. I think that's really important. And I know it's something that um, has been a part of, like, you know, we mentioned Kimberly before, Kimberly Warner with like unfixed and stuff. And I think just the, you know, in learning more. Uh, through doing this podcast and talking to you and talking to some other folks with chronic illness and stuff, like um, learning more about that kind of ethos of not being concerned about like uh, whether it be your health, your grief, uh, with like the final outcome being, you know, to be better or to be healed or to accept, but rather like integrating, you know, the realities of what our situation and our grief and our pain into our life and finding a way to still live anyway. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the greatest lessons I've learned since I've experienced grief and started learning more about it. And I think it's such an important thing for people who are listening um, and people who might not know about grief or who are scared to think about it or are unfamiliar with it is that, you know, it isn't, you know, it, there isn't a fine, there isn't an end date. Yeah. There's no expiration date on it. It's a continuing journey that you somehow find a way to incorporate into your life. And, you know, it's always there and it's going to happen. It's going to happen again. Right. Like we're all we're all slowly yeah. <laughs> headed yeah. headed towards the end. And uh, I whenever whenever there's something kind of chaotic or there's a crisis uh, moment, you know, now I always remind myself like, this will happen again and this will probably be worse. You know, I, I need yeah. to remind myself that things, uh, I, I don't, I really don't, there's so many things that people say to people with chronic illnesses and disabilities that I think are not helpful. And one of them is that like, everything's going to be okay. And mm. the truth is that it's, it's not. And, and yeah. I mean, I guess what is okay, that's relative, right? Like we could have talked sure. about that all day, but, um, mm you know, I think it was the Dalai Lama who said, um, 
uh, pain is inevitable, but suffering is suffering is optional. My, I say that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, it's, and it's what true. that means, what that actually means. So, can you tell us more about how you interpret that? What that means to you? Um, well, I would have to cite, like, again, going back to you know Buddhist philosophy that everything in life is full of suffering and and I don't you know the words the, the term suffering is is kind of loosely interpreted from the Pali word dukkha which I'm sure you know and uh it's it's more like disease and dissatisfaction and mm-hmm. we're plagued by that um as human beings all the time and it could be you know literally like disease like disease and loss and, and grief as as the as the form of dukkha or suffering and it could be like just not getting what you want or or getting what you don't want and and those are all mm. kinds of things that we grapple with every single day um whether you have a chronic illness or or lost somebody or or not we're just it's the nature of being human so just understanding that all of that is inevitable because we're human beings and and really the flip side of that is that you know without that suffering we wouldn't experience joy and happiness because mm-hmm. it's like yeah. dark and light. Like you have to have discomfort and, and uncertainty and unpredictability in order to be a human being on planet earth, because without, without the darkness, you don't have the light with, if everything was, you know, if we could predict everything and we could get rid of pain, we would never feel joy or, or happiness. Totally. So um, I interpret that, Bobby, as, um, you know, disease, disease and dissatisfaction and disease, mm-hmm. they're, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're inevitable. We're all becoming disabled. We're all dying. And um, mm. we're all going to have horrible, unspeakable encounters with pain and suffering. But how we um, are really just pain, but the, the suffering that we endure as a result of it is kind of up to us. Like, we, we get to, you know, you can cha- you, you can't change the things that happen to you, but you, you can change how you react to them. We say that all the time. Um, so that's, that's how I respond. You know, yeah. It brings me, I was, I uh, took out my, one of my very favorite books this morning, which is Full Catastrophe Living, John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. And I just took a little quote because it, after looking through your website and seeing that you you so move in this direction of trying to find pain without suffering, he says that suffering is only one response to the experience of pain. Not just the pain, but the way we see it and react to it helps to determine the degree of suffering. And it is the suffering we fear, not the pain. That's a big book. I have that it's book It's a too. wonderful book. That is a book. good book. <laughs> yeah. And I tell people, um, you don't have to read the whole book. You just pick out yeah. one thing, one little section. And it's it's all about how we use awareness to help us be in the moment. And in the moment, there's we try to have no judgment. We try not to compare anything. It just it notice what we're actually feeling in the moment and that how that helps us not suffer. Mm. I have a question, Martel. Just kind of going back a little bit, circling back to you know your years uh, dealing with an eating disorder, and then kind of what we're talking about now. I have a curiosity, which is that, you know, so often um, we talk about comfort foods and about like the kind of little wins in life when you are going through a difficult time that are those things that can be really comforting and healing and nostalgic and, and peaceful. And I'm curious 
to know from your perspective, when you do struggle with an eating disorder and you're also in a place of needing so much kind of comfort because you're feeling distressed, what is the relationship with food like in that, in that way for you? And what was it like, you know, for you? It was really hard because, um, and I'm speaking about like the years where I wasn't really restricting because I don't think that in those comfortable moments when I was restricting, I didn't turn to food. I turned to other like sensory pleasures, you know, like mm. movies or, you know, art, right. or, you know, I was, I'm an artist. So it was like, just do art or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But after it was super hard because I wanted that comfort and I couldn't really control. It was so, it was such a weird s- sensation. And if you've ever talked to somebody who has like a binge eating issue, um, it was really like I just couldn't stop feeding myself the comfort foods mm. and, and it would make me then, you know, feel sick and feel uncomfortable and then not like myself even more. So it was this really vicious cycle of like, I'm sad about anything, you know, work, or I'm stressed with work. I'm sad about, you know, a relationship, whatever it is. And I'm going to go to the supermarket and get myself my favorite, you know, like candy or cookies or like a no- like normal, like I do this normally now every week and it's and it's healthy now and I know when you know I my body and my brain knows when to stop um when I'm full or I'm satisfied and and back then I just I there was like no signal between my brain and my body to stop the consumption so I think it's really hard um if you're if you have an eating disorder if you're in the binge eating um realm of eating disorders which is often which often I think follows well, accompanies bulimia certainly, and and follows um, anorexia uh, at least. Yeah, because you've yeah you've you've limited your body for so long from pleasure that yeah. I just would eat so much junk food, and it was really not great. So I think that's an awesome question because I don't I don't hear people talking about that enough. Yeah, and you you're depriving your body and your psyche. Yeah. Right. You're depriving yeah. the experience of taking in and you're, you're telling yourself, I can't do that, you know? So right. That, and then that, you're also, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, Bobby, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's okay. I didn't mean to talk to you. No, I, I, then, you know, also just societally, like we are like, it's a like comfort food and treats and stuff. And it's like, everybody needs. And yeah. so I'm just, you know, curious as having, you know, gone through that experience, how do you redefine treats? And I, this is complete conjecture at this point, but when you're talking about never feeling satisfied, a couple of weeks ago, we did a show on the connection. I believe actually might have even been when we were talking about heartbreak. We did an episode about heartbreak and I did a little bit of like kind of surfacey research about, you know, what it is that like your body tells you when you're going through a heartbreak and you either want to eat or don't want to eat. And obviously I think, you know, the serotonin is a huge part of it. And I'm just again, this is complete conjecture, but it's interesting to now that you're at a place where you feel stable in your life emotionally. So eating seems to be something where like, you're not like chasing that serotonin, right? So like, it's it's something about binge eating, I think has to do with like, you know, you do get a rush of serotonin when you binge eat, especially like sugar and stuff like that. And I guess I'm just trying to think about you know, if feeling in a place of more mental kind of stability, um, and not kind of searching for that as much as you were when you were in a kind of, you know, deeper, darker place. I don't, I wonder where the connection yeah. might be there. I'm, I'm not sure what the connection is. I think there's so many, so many in a sense where it's like, you know, you're, 
you're filling in a sense of like lack definitely happens yeah. too. Um, you're filling in this lack mentality by stuffing yourself full with food. And this can be the case for, you know, someone with an overeating condition too, you know, mm. significantly like we're, we're fill, yeah, like stuffing the void of that we feel within ourselves. There's that. There's exactly what you said from like a you know neurobiological standpoint of you know just needing that like high. Um, there's the deprivation that you experienced and and the the reaction to to that deprivation. So I think it's a lot of different connections. Yeah. And then there's what you talked about before, self-regulation, that you've learned about self-regulation. Right. And when we can do that, then we can feed ourselves in a much more balanced way. Oh, and yeah. Balance being so important. I say to my boyfriend now, because we've been together for only like a little over two years, and mm-hmm. he had, you know, did not know me back then did not know me from the age of like 16 to like, I would say 25, where this was a really big struggle for me. And I always say like, it's, it's really remarkable that you can see me eat things and like weigh myself and, you know, not freak out about it because (laughs) that was so difficult. Like, or just going to an event, going to a holiday where there's food everywhere or a party. And like that, that is a nightmare for somebody with an eating mm-hmm. disorder or a history mm-hmm. of eating disorders, even like yeah. to go to a, you know, a gala or, a, you know, any holiday gathering where there's food everywhere. It's, it's absolutely your worst nightmare. So, um, mm-hmm. to know that that's not who I am anymore and to really mm-hmm. not feel any connection to that person is probably the biggest triumph of my entire life and I I've never really thought of it that way because I I again like I'm not that person anymore but it was such a dark place for me and my relationship Mm. with food was so so messed up for so long it felt like um like a third of my life that to not identify I wouldn't even say identify but to not feel that craving or the panic of like, oh my God, I'm two pounds over the weight that I want to be or like things like that don't drive me, don't drive my day, don't drive my, don't take a hold of my mind any longer is yeah, definitely probably the biggest um, obstacle, even more than my vision that I've ever had to Well, that's why I'm sure you worked very, very hard to to come to this place and learn so much about yourself. So can we talk more about your wonderful program? beyond the battle it's it's just so amazing i do you know that this week since i read your website i referred at least six people that i work with because so many people have chronic illness and so many caregivers Mm. of people with chronic illness so can you tell us more about the program and what you offer yeah so um beyond my battle started as really a support group online um like a facebook group with my friends um and i uh she she's the she and i co-founded the organization together in early 2018 so we just celebrated our third year anniversary and um anniversary. oh thank you and um she has cystic fibrosis and i have mm. um retinitis pigmentosa which just couldn't be more opposite uh kinds of Mm, illnesses and so but when we met each other um we realized and when we became like immediate best friends just how much um your illness that your your specific diagnosis does not need to be the driving factor of what where you find emotional support because 
um, if anything, it actually causes you to compare and commiserate more, which is, is not, it feels good immediately. Like if you, you know, the, the research behind venting, it's like, feels good right now, but long-term it's actually not mm-hmm. doing you any favors. You need to right. work on, like you said, you know, emotional regulation, you know, mindfulness, acceptance, gratitude, all the things that you don't typically find in those spaces where you're just surrounded by people asking how, how far along your disease progression mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. What kind As of- if you are the disease. Right. And yeah, it it furthers the identification. Absolutely. um, Which we want to move away from, but without, you know, of course, denying that it exists. So we created this organization that really um, focuses on just the emotional components of having an illness or a disability or being a caregiver for someone with an illness or disability, because we know that that's often the most difficult part. That's the most difficult part. And, and also a lot of research goes to show that, um, you know, engaged coping with, with your difficulties in life is, um, actually helps your health, actually helps your health in the long run and disengaged coping. So not seeking support or not socializing or, um, not tending to your needs, um, creates, you know, health, really health, more health challenges. So, and, and, and stress in and of itself that is so incredibly inherent to having an illness or a disability or being a caregiver, um, creates even more health issues. Obviously we all know the ways that stress impacts our body now, and it's why would we want to, you know, subject ourselves to additional illnesses or, or burnout for a caregiver and then be emotionally unavailable for our loved ones. Um, that's not what we want to do for ourselves. We want to learn how to manage this stress, work with what, you know, the cards that we've been dealt and, um, that's where we came from. So, so we provide, uh, various kind of educational tools to just enter into the stress management type of space, uh, for those who are new to it, everything from, you know, meditation to getting outside and, you know, more like reading material. But then we also offer support services in the sense of like peer facilitated support groups. Um, we just started a program about, um, uh, painting and writing for expression and calming and therapeutic uh, uh, values that they bring. So we are still a young organization, but um, it's definitely filling a need. And I will say like now that COVID, ha- it's been a year and we're learning about these these long haul, long haulers. Like, we had the first, our first like COVID long hauler in one of our support groups recently. Mm. And it's really concerning. Like this is now going to being this additional epidemic of like, of chronic illness that we don't really know where it came from. We don't really know the long-term effects of it. I mean, this person I think had like a significant brain fog that was causing them so much distress and it was brand new because of COVID. And Mm. so I think that it's a time to really be aware of the vast population who who lives with uh, chronic illness, rare disease, you know, whatever kind of uh, physical condition that 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 alters your life, um, and the the accommodations that they need. So we we operate pretty much entirely online. Every now and then we'll do like a in person workshop for like a local organization, mm-hmm. but. Um, really to, to maintain a level of accessibility to the community that we serve, um, we found from the beginning that we should operate in the online space. 
Awesome. That's amazing. Did a wonderful job on the website. It really, you know, all the areas of um, focus, you know, nature and you know, yeah. exercise and all those things. You really broke it down how to do it and how to participate in it. I thought it was excellent. Really Thanks. Wonderful. Thanks for referring people. That's of so course, special. Uh, oh, you have no yeah. idea this. Well, I, you know, we, we have a, a quote that we use almost every single session of uh, processing, which is from Viktor Frankl. And he says, survival is a community event. And we really just believe in that. And so when we meet others like yourself that are bringing people together and, you know, realizing that that's how we survive with each other, helping each other, it's just it's so totally. admirable and wonderful. Yeah. So Martel, as we draw to a close at this amazing episode, this is such a great conversation. It's like incredible. Um, want to ask you the classic processing question, which is if you could give your young self at the beginning of this, you know, experience, um, a bit of advice having gone through, gone through and knowing what you know now, what would that be? I would say that, you know, I've been studying mindfulness and Buddhist philosophy for a while. And I look back at the person I was with so much compassion. Now I, I truly was so miserable in my body and I took it out on my weight. And even in my relationships, I sabotaged myself with food and with love. And I feel so bad for, um, I feel so bad for what that version of me went through. And I wish that she knew what I know now, which is that, you know, nothing is promised and nothing is permanent and life is full to the brim of suffering, um, that the reality is that I am going blind and we're all becoming disabled and we're all dying and loss is everywhere. So really I would tell her that it's, it's how we handle the suffering that makes us, um, unhappy or doesn't. And in fact, being aware of the suffering and not pushing it away is how we begin to do that. Beautiful. That's a, a, what an amazing sentiment. (laughs) Um, this was Thank an, you for a really, finding. of course, this was such a great episode, Martel. It was so, you know, I mean, every guest we have on is so interesting and complex and, and fascinating in their own way. And this was a really lovely, lovely, lovely conversation. And just hearing your perspective on, on life is, you know, fascinating. And, you know, it's funny when we first asked that question, what advice would you give to yourself? And you're like, well, I don't want to say it's going to be okay because I just said, I don't like when people say that, but I will put an asterisk on that. I think it's okay to say it to yourself. Yeah. Because, you know, and, and it's okay depending on the context, right? Like, because my boyfriend and I always talks about, uh, always talk about this and he's studied a lot of uh, Buddhism and particularly Taoism as well. And, um, we always say like these things that we don't like that really don't work. Like everything is going to be okay. But when that's on the micro level, when you, when you get um, macro with it when you yeah. really zoom out like everything is going to be okay yeah like, sure everything literally like the earth is going to blow up someday and it's going to be okay because it's just yeah the way that it goes. well but, it's so personal to say it to yourself yeah yeah you know what I mean but, um yeah it's, it's like kind of these it depends on where your mind is at with it so it's like to tell somebody after their child just died a serious horrific death that like, yeah oh it's gonna be okay is like super insensitive and I think that that person needs more than anything to hear that like this is horrible and I'm so sorry and I'm here for you like that's the response that they need in that moment but of like course. when you're when you look at life big picture 
Yeah. yeah, it is going to be okay. Everything, you yeah. know, even even through all throughout all the the worst of the worst, it's going to be okay. So I, I really think it's kind of the placement of that term and totally. um, really the relationship that you use it to. Um, yeah, to everything. Completely. You're talking about. And if I could <laughs> totally add one agree. other comment onto that, you know, what I really learned from mindfulness is really that to be in this moment means what do I know to be true right now, and yeah. in this moment, I'm okay. Everything is okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you go really micro, really, really micro or really, really macro with that statement in particular, you do end up at the same place. But then if you get really like somebody's having a panic attack moment, um, it doesn't really work. Well, Martel, this was great. And we appreciate your time. And thank you for sharing so candidly and being vulnerable and generous with your time and your story. It really means so much. I know it means so much to the community, people who listen to the show. I also want to thank Bobby, your dog, who has begun barking wildly, trying She's to get performed. in on the conversation. Um, but in all seriousness, thank you so much, Martel. This was so wonderful, and it was so great to connect with you. And we hope to keep the conversation going. And, and keep so, up the know. good work. Unbelievable yeah, really. work. And thank please, you. Uh, can you just tell people quickly how to find your, and we'll put a link to this, but can you just tell people quickly uh, how to find your uh, your website? That, so you can find my personal website um, and contact information is just at martelcatalano.com. Um, mm-hmm. It's also Martel Catalano on Instagram, uh, where I tend to post most of my like day-to-day thoughts. Um, and then uh, the Beyond My Battle website is beyondmybattle.org. Okay, amazing. Please check it out. It really is an incredible website and your work is so important. Thank you for doing Thank it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you both so much. It was great to meet you and talk with you. So good. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheese Landian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.